then the light bulb sort of went off and started thinking about, you know, I should do this full time because at this point now I have a special needs child. And I'm thinking I'm going to need to take care of him for his whole life, even beyond my life. So I need to build a legacy, I need to build legacy well. This is the Yield Coach Show, episode 48. Hey everybody, this is your coach Ian Brown. A few announcements. Yield Coach Capital has opened its doors to investors looking to multiply their money while working with yours truly and our varsity investment team. We recently closed our 170 acre Gainesville, Florida industrial track and our limited partner investors are on pace to make two and a half times or more on their money. That opportunity is gone, but don't miss the next one. Be sure to join our investor list and never miss a deal again. You can join our investor list by the portal, which is in the show notes of this podcast. It's in our Instagram bio link, and you can also do it at yield-coach.com. If you join our investor list, we will get you the free gift, 107 questions to ask a deal sponsor, and a discount to our employee to entrepreneur video course, which is packed full of information and case studies to kickstart your investment success. Now is your time to take the field. I'm your host, Ian Brown. Every episode, we bring you dynamic entrepreneurs, real estate investors, thought leaders, and inspirational guests ready to open up and share their story, the good, the bad, the ugly, so you can learn lessons, gain advantages, and accelerate your own success. Very excited today to be joined by Miss Maria Zondervan. I'm trying, Maria. Maria is an exciting guest. She's been, I got it. She's the founder and CEO of Blue Vikings Capital. She has been investing in real estate since the 90s. And she's tackled everything from single family homes to apartment complexes and hotels, very diverse background. She likes affordable and workforce housing as safe spots for investors. And we're going to learn about what she's been doing with the um, autistic community to help. So Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, interesting bio. We'll, we'll unpack that a little bit. But if you would, give us just a little bit of background on yourself. Yeah, I mean, I started in real estate back when I was in college, which, you know, as you mentioned, was about five years ago. <laughs> All right. So 1990s there. Um, University of Florida, Gator. And uh, I was, as I was studying for, uh, for finals one year, I saw an infomercial about real estate where they made it seem really, really simple. So, you know, I, I bought one of those courses and uh, spent my textbook money on that instead. And uh, just kind of had that as, as my sideline gig, as I had another profession, you know, I was a wildlife biologist for 26 years. But real estate is awesome because it can be passive if you do it right. And uh, so I kind of did that on the side because as a biologist, believe it or not, you don't make a lot of money. What? It's something you can have a lot of fun with and be <laughs> passionate about and, and do cool stuff. But uh, it's also nice to have that nest egg. Mm -hmm. So you're like, how, you know, I, the, the courses, I feel like, so I didn't really, when I, I was at Florida State, so go Knowles. It's okay. We'll have some fun. We're all, we're all <laughs> Florida here. here. We're all Florida here. So, um, but, you know, so, so much of the coursework is just not on topic. And this is a whole, we're not going to hold podcast on this, but you're in, you're in undergrad or whatever, and you just don't care about so much of the, of the topics. And, you know, I really like playing rugby and bartending and taking, I was a history major. I love my history classes. I had no interest in going to uh, Spanish class, my, the bare minimum math class that I had to take to be a history major. I mean, there were some classes where I did the math on how many I could miss and I went to the rest and I went along, <laughs> but I can see why you might sit there, watch an infomercial, be drawn to it and be like, I want to get into real estate. 
And I, I remember wanting to get into real estate starting in about that time frame, undergrad, because I was paying my own rent. So it's quite quite simply, I was paying my own bills. Yep, my my uh, Yeah, and you're like, okay. So I would go bartender, wait tables or whatever I was doing. Literally have cash in hand because especially, you know, 90s, early 2000s, you had a lot of cash transactions. I just go pay my landlord with that hard earned cash. And I was like, man. And even not knowing like financial underwriting, like I know it now, I would just kind of do the basics. I would like just search like what a mortgage would cost for a price of house that I was in. I was like, oh my God, this guy's making hundreds of dollars on me every month. And uh, and I was like, I can definitely do this. And it was kind of the first light bulb where I was like, I want to, I want to get into real estate investing. Very simple, but I, that's the first thing I saw. So what was the course that you saw? What was, or what did you buy? It was Carlton Sheets. He was the guru of the time and uh, he was pushing the whole uh, lease option, no money down, deal transaction, wraparound mortgages, all that kind of stuff. It was all very new at the time. Very few people had learned it, but we did our first one as a lease option that we house hacked. And house hacking was not a term that anybody used back then. But like you said, you know, we were shelling out all this money for rent and then we're like, huh. So we can get into this house, no money down, and then rent out part of it to pay for most of it. I'm like, that sounds better. Let's do that. Yeah. I don't think we've ever talked about a residential. I've I've done lease options personally, and I've helped some clients do them. Uh, they're awesome. Uh, we did one on a hotel. Uh, the audience would consider it a motel. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> not one that you would stay at, but I mean... It was perfect. We had seller financing and I know what the guy was doing. And you know what? He might've been a Carlton Sheets guy from back in the day, um, but he didn't have his down payment yet. So by jumping in with a lease and just pocketing the net cash flow, and he, he went ahead and lived on site um, in this, it was like an 88 room hotel. And I think he got his down payment scrolled away in like a year. I mean, he was living modestly, but people don't think, I'm not saying that's the sexiest approach to real estate, but talk about like scrubbing your way in. I mean, that's that's a that's an interesting way to go. And then your example being residential, you could do the same thing applies. You get in and by house hacking, now you're actually making money, assume, assuming there's like an arbitrage or a delta on the on the rent and the lease payment, you know, that you're that you're paying. And then boom, pull the option trigger. And what I like about lease options too is you can change the value of the property while you have it. So if you negotiate it well, the landlord's really thinking like, is this joker even going to exercise the option? Well, I'll speak for myself. They look at me like, is this guy even going to be able to buy it? So I feel like they don't dwell on the option price nearly as much as, as they would if it was a purchase and sale agreement. They're like, okay, let's focus on the lease. And what are you going to pay me every month? And are you credit worthy? And sure, yeah, we'll do an option price at X. I just feel like it gets almost, I won't say swept under the rug, but less attention. And then boom, you get in there, you start, I mean, you start cleaning up the property and painting and pressure washing and putting a, a tenant in there if you're going to house hack it. And the next thing you know, property's worth more and you've pocketed cash. And now you can afford a property that's worth more than you negotiated it. So that's such yeah, a great we, approach. We both bought and sold on lease options, you know, and, and if you find a tired landlord, they're kind of the perfect um, potential for getting in on lease option because you say, hey, because I'm planning on buying it, I will handle all repairs, Right. I mean, so many tired tenants, they're like, whoa, 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 tenant that's going to handle the repairs. I'm like anything under, pick your number, you know, 500 bucks, 200 bucks, whatever, any small stuff, I'm not going to bother you. I'm going to take care of all that because it's going to be my home. I'm going to buy this. You know, you, you get them in that mindset and they're like, oh, okay, this, this could work. And they're still thinking you may not exercise, right? But, um, but we would also sell it that way. Say, look, we're selling to you. You're going to handle the repairs. And you're right. A lot of them don't end up executing on it. But while they have your house, because they have that owner mindset, 
they don't tear up your place and they make improvements and they take care of it. So you just get a much better tenant. You can charge more rent because, you know, you're putting more money towards their down payment, which they mm -hmm. may or may not end up using. It's really a win-win situation on, on both ends. And I guess more of an audience point, but, you know, one thing to consider if you're going to enter into a lease option, if you can, you you may get credit towards the purchase price for your rent payments. It's a negotiated item. Some landlords aren't going to go for that, but we've we've done it. Um, done it for others. So that's just another another practical pointer there. What we offered up uh, to our tenants, if they said they wanted some of that, it was like, well, you know, the rent payment is the rent payment, but if you want to put extra towards it, that will go towards it and we'll credit it at 125%. So oh. if you want to pay an extra $100 above your rent, we'll give you $125 for that mm. credit towards the house. So sort of like a, an instant savings, you know, Kind of like when your uh, employer matches your 401k kind of thing up to a certain yeah. percentage. Well, and obviously, you know, you're, you're cheering for them and like you want them to, you know, it's all structured where they can rent and then buy. And if they don't, you know, um, they've at least treated the property much, much better. I think that was a good point. I hadn't necessarily thought about that when you were talking through it, but you're going to treat the property much differently than if you're just a tenant. So, um, so how, so you're, you're a Carlton Sheets graduate guru um where did you slash what'd you say did you say you're a biologist wildlife biologist yeah wildlife. Now, wait, endangered is, species oh, i don't even know if i want to step into that topic so <laughs> the bug the bugs and bunnies reports right so it's like the, the one that make all the investors cringe well um, you know no not really that part of it but um i worked for st john's river water management district so they okay. just own a lot of land they own like seven hundred thousand acres of land we took care of the endangered species on those properties and did what we could to increase their populations. You guys are rare. There's not a lot of like science ecologists, biologists, environmental types like turned investor. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's why my investment strategy might be a little different than some because, you know, I still have that passion behind everything I do. It just has to be passion driven. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not just the almighty dollar, right? You got to have not, something no. behind it. Well, I think that's that's a good segue. I'm glad you said that. So where did you go from, you graduated from Carleton, you got the t-shirt and the plaque, and then where, where did you go after that? Yeah, so bought uh, more residential, more houses, was doing everything on my own, didn't know uh, real estate could be team sport. Like that was not a thing I knew anything about. So just out there doing it kind of on my own. Um at some point, I guess it was leading up to the, the big crash in 2008, but, you know, we were approaching that bubble and said, man, I don't know that these houses can get much higher. So we sold some of those. I say we, because my husband was part of the equation here. Um, he was a school teacher at the time. He was teaching some special needs and students, all that. Again, very passionate about those things, but not making a lot of money. Wanted to open his own business. I'm like, let's cash out some real estate and uh, get into the franchise world, you know, entrepreneur stuff. So did that, bought a, um, built from the ground up a Massage MB franchise. This was when they're brand new. Most people hadn't heard of them. Now they're kind of all over the place. That ended up doing really, really well. Ended up buying a second location. And then eventually, um, you know, those are producing more cash flow. And we're still trying to keep our living expenses down, living in within our means. And so now we need a place to put that cash flow. And I was like, well, time to buy more real estate, you know, right off some of that income. But we realized we just can't scale fast enough and collecting single family homes, it's a little, it, it becomes work after a while if you're managing all those on yourself, on your own. So that's when we mm -hmm. decided to uh, jump into multifamily. So I started studying everything there was to, 
to know about multifamily and jumped into that in 2019. And uh, yeah, so kind of went multifamily from there. And once I figured out how well that works and how much more profitable it is and uh, kicking myself for not going there much, much sooner, and that you could be completely passive. You could you could just be a limited partner and stuff. And I was still making more money on those transactions than I was with my single family homes, better returns on my investment. Then the light bulb sort of went off and started thinking about, you know, I should do this full time because at this point now I have a special needs child. And I'm thinking I'm going to need to take care of him for his whole life, even beyond my life. So I need to build a legacy, I need to build legacy well. And, um, and started getting to know a lot of parents in that sector in the special needs world and start seeing their struggles i'm like you know i can help them too this really can be a team sport so um yeah kind of just kept going from there and i do want to obviously we're going to jump into that that special needs component um when we talk about going from single family to multifamily, that is a popular topic and it's a common question and almost everybody universally says what you just said a moment ago why didn't i do it earlier um, and I think just maybe a couple minutes before that, you talked about team sport. These are like resounding themes in my life. I think for this audience and when you do single family, unless you're doing like maybe fix and flips at scale, a larger rental portfolio, again, more at scale, it's not really a team sport. It's usually like one frantic investor, uh, that sometimes doesn't even know if they're making money. And you might think that sounds silly but you're constantly churning cash into new deal, new deal, new yeah. deal. Um, it takes time to slow down for a half day and tighten up your QuickBooks and work with your accountant and figure out what you actually netted and what's my tax consequence. And I have met, and I did seven years of title and escrow. I did so many closings for fix and flippers where they would tell me, they're like, I'm not even sure. I think I made money. <laughs> uh, they're like, I still got to reconcile the books on this one. Um, some of them were also brokers or agents. So they're like, you know, they got their commission and they'll be like, you don't want to be flipping houses for, <laughs> for a sales commission. Um, so anyways, we'll, we'll, we'll pause there. But the point is going to scale and going to multifamily, assuming it's large enough, it doesn't have to even be that big. Um, the first one I bought that was a little bit larger was 28 units. And okay, that can support maybe not a full-time onsite, but we actually did have a gentleman that, um, that lived in a discounted unit and worked like 20 hours a week, you know, at, at a modest rate because he had deeply discounted housing. It was perfect. And it was like his, he felt like it was his community and we self-managed it, but it wasn't so burdensome. Um, but you can't really do that on a one-off house. Um, so I, I think that the team sport component is, is amazing. Now you can afford um, like the building will heal itself. Like something breaks, unless it's horrible and not forecast, which might be an insurance claim. If it's just a, a routine thing, that's like, oh man, that's like $10,000, $20,000. You can probably just like stop distributions, let the property heal itself, build up your account and do it right out of cash flow. That is really not the case with a house. I mean, if, if you have like a roof fail on a single family, unless you just saved or escrowed the money, I mean, or have a line of credit, you, you don't have it. So you just, and it would take too long for the single family home to do that on its own. So as um, I'm sure, you know, being in Florida, you know, our insurance is kind of crazy here and the insurance companies started requiring you put a new roof on a house to stay insured, regardless of whether the roof needed to be replaced. So I end up having replaced three perfectly good roofs all in the same year on single family homes. 
Mm. And that killed the cash flow for three years. Three years. You know? yeah. yeah. And yeah, you just don't get that in multifamily, like you said. Plus, of course, the tax benefits with all your bonus depreciation, accelerated depreciation. Can't get that with single family. And in the end, it's not what you make, it's what you keep, right? And so, exactly. like you said, you, sometimes you don't have time to take a breath and even figure out what you're making. Well, you need to calculate in the taxes. Yes. And, uh, you know, especially if you're flipping, oh my gosh, you're paying so many taxes. That's ordinary income tax. Oh, I know. It's brutal. And um, when I was debating a few years back about like how I was going to switch, when I say switch from like, I was, you know, the Kiyosaki quadrants, I was, I was an S self-employed and I was like, I want to jump over. I really want to just go to an I, but I wasn't sure what that was going to look like. And I had a, I had a portfolio and it was covering my expenses. So I'm like, okay, like I'm Kiyosaki definition wealthy. Friends wouldn't consider me rich, but I could, I could do this forever and, and, and not work traditionally. And I was like, well, and I was like kind of hesitant to stop the like the title and escrow and some of the niche brokerage, I still do some commercial brokerage, but I was like, man. And then I started to think about, okay, how much tax I'm paying on this earned income that I'm like hanging on to like this, like this, like this rope. And I was like, you know, it's not even as good as I think it is because of the tax rate I'm getting clipped at. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to keep channeling my energy into these assets that have a very low tax burden. And for really up until about the time of this recording, I mean, we're in Florida. We're we're in one of the states that I think Miami just at least single family just posted like a double digit year over year appreciation as of last month. You know, Crazy. I know there's play there's places where people are listening. You know, where there's fifteen percent declines. You know, and things like that. But we're we're in a good state, Maria, and uh, and all, all my real estate holdings have been very good to me, so I don't have any regrets uh, letting go of that 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 title and escrow earned W-2 income to do more of what you're talking about with the tax benefits. Yeah. When we took a look at it um, and, and again, this is about really looking at what you're making. Um, so when I leave my W-2 job, right. I, I can now claim a real estate professional status. So now I can start writing off my husband's active income. And when we looked at what that was, because he's taking dividends from our massage MB locations and all that, plus we have all the real estate coming in, it more than made up for my almost my entire income. So I'm like, I'm working for free, you know, I'm busting my butt over here. And if I simply just left the job, the real the tax savings almost made up for that whole income. That's amazing. And you can now follow a passionate path. Um, yeah. Which I think is a, I think that's a good, a good segue. So if we could jump into, you know, some of the, the passion that you bring to what you're doing and the purpose, I, you know, I know they're correlated, but um, investing with a cause, can we, can, I know, I know more than the audience knows right now, but I'm gonna let you pick it up from there. Tell us how you do that. Yeah. Well, they say, if you're going to do well in this world, you got to have a big why, right? And there are no bigger whys in this world than your kids. And so my oldest son, I've got two sons, his name is Carl. Um, he's now 22, but you know, he's got autism and that comes with some limitations. Now he's pretty high functioning. I'm super proud of him. At one point they said, you know, he'll never graduate high school with a regular diploma. Not only did he do that and do very well, but he just got his AA degree and he's going for his history 
a major at University of Central Florida. So awesome. another, another history major out there yeah. up in real estate. Right? <laughs> exactly. Who knows? Who knows the path they'll pick? But anyway, he's doing great. But nonetheless, there are limitations. Um, he has a very hard time finding a job uh, just because the social skills are lacking. Right. That's that's the biggest hindrance. And one in 44 kids in the United States right now is born with autism. It's just a huge, staggering number. I mean, really think about that. One in 44. You can't reach out your arms in the grocery store, not hit somebody who's affected by autism. So these, these individuals, you know, they really long to be independent and live on their own, but they're, they're gullible. People take advantage of them. They don't read social clues very well. There's some limitations there that make that very difficult. So 75% of them live with their parents forever. And the fact is, if all goes according to plan, right, you're going to outlive your parents. And then what? What happens next? So parents really worry about who's going to take care of my kids when I'm not here. And a lot of them, you know, they're going to age too. It might be difficult. And some just get worn out taking care of kids your entire life, right? Even if they're adult kids, it's, um, it's exhausting. So we want to provide a place where they can live independently but with some assistance someone is still looking after them the parents can rest easy knowing there's still eyes on them someone's going to make sure everything's okay and provide some of those services that they need for mm-hmm. example a lot of them don't drive only about 50 percent of the population drives right so you need transportation you need some social skills training you need job coaching job placement services so integrate communities that offer all of that so for that purpose i set up valhalla villas which is a nonprofit where that is exactly what we're aiming to do. That's awesome. So in the, and in the, in the Vikings brand too, right? I'm going to say yeah. it wrong. Val, Valhalla, Valhalla, right? Valhalla, right. Yeah. Yes. Um, the Vikings capital. And that's all of that comes from the fact that I was born and raised in Sweden, actually. So I'm an immigrant from Sweden. I've got that Swedish Viking blood running through my veins. Nice. And for those that are watching video or YouTube, you've got the the Vikings capital, blue Vikings capital logo with the Viking helmet. And you've, you've definitely got the look too. I could, I could just put that right on your head. You got one. I would imagine you would. So the, now you run this as a, um, I believe you told me before the show, you run it as a, a nonprofit or a foundation. Can you elaborate? Yeah, that's, that's a nonprofit. Valhalla Villas is. And um, so there's going to be two kind of models. There's a ground up development model where we make community exclusively for people with autism, for those that kind of need or want to be in a community that has just caters to their needs. But then to get things, that takes a long time to build those ground up. And we do that through uh, tax credits that the nonprofit can get from the government, basically, where they give us tax credits that we then sell to a corporation. Mm-hmm. You know, so if, if you're a big corporation let's say microsoft or something you have a big tax burden we can sell you dollar tax credits for 90 cents right so you save 10 cents on the dollar to reduce your taxes and then we take that money to build the the community from the ground up so it's really cool but it takes a long time takes about six years per community to get those off the ground and like i mentioned there's a tremendous tremendous need for this so to do it faster we're taking the real estate syndication model because that's something I'm already doing. I'm already syndicating. I know how to pick out apartment complexes that are doing well. And so we find the ones that are kind of right in the right spot, close to the grocery store, walking distance, since you know, a lot of people don't drive, good employers around there that we can form communities with. 
and then we go buy an apartment complex just like you would any other apartment complex and then you integrate autism into that complex so you have all your regular tenants everyone's paying market rents just as usual and then your autistic individuals can come in there live we do uh, roommate matching services so they don't have the cost of a full apartment necessarily have the social integration which is good for them a lot of them suffer for loneliness you're sort of a built-in friend right mm -hmm. also more eyes on somebody and then um and then we put the services in place and then the nonprofit comes in and can provide grants and scholarships to anyone who still has problems meeting that uh, affordability criteria. I'm just thinking through what you say, cause it's so novel and unique. So high level, like from the real estate side, the asset is the asset. It's not necessarily a special apartment at acquisition right. other than maybe the location, um, like walkability and scores like that. Um, you said only 50% of the, was it the autistic population drive? So only That's about right. half. Okay. So you're kind of accommodating for that by location. Um, hmm. Is there, and maybe you already said it. So you'll do the roommate matching, not forgive me for the naivete. You have the, you have the alternative avenues for getting the rent paid. Do you, are there any extra challenges with having um, an or a heavily autistic tenant base and and just funding the rent does it does it typically need to come from the the tenant or a parent or a foundation what, like what does it normally look like what or what would an investor i guess would be my question what would right. an investor expect for some headwinds or challenges with 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 this setup right yeah so i mean the the investors that invest in these complexes they're getting the same thing as they would if it was a regular tenant right it's, it's market rents we're working behind the scenes to make them be able to afford that by whatever means necessary. Some of them will get social security disability. And so they'll have those disability checks that they can apply to rent. Some get housing assistance. Some have parents contributing. Some have jobs that can contribute. They may have ABLE accounts, guardianships. There's a whole line of structures, you know. Mm. Uh, so, so there's certainly different ways that they might be funding it, but it's not going to be anything that an investor realizes the real estate and the services are kind of two separate pieces so um what makes it very different in the syndication model is most syndications they exit in five to seven years thereabouts obviously that time frame can change this would not have an exit you're going to have a refinance where you get all your capital back but you're going to have cash flow forever with this property unless you choose to sh sell your share so, you know, it's something that can really benefit people that want to leave something for their kids. We know that 70% of wealth is lost by the second generation because those that didn't make it usually don't know how to take care of it or how to reinvest it. So if you leave something to a child, but they don't know how to get back into the next great um, limit partnership or whatever way you are choosing to invest, they may not know how to do that. So they may squander that money. In this case, they can't, right? They're not in charge of when it sells. So they're just going to get that monthly cash flow forever. And you can just set them up and make sure they're always going to have that money. I like that. And do it's really great a... for special needs parents who have kids that they need to think about long-term, you know, setting them up. Um, would it be common to have a limited partner investor be one of the parents of a autistic absolutely. tenant absolutely absolutely yeah so they're invested in the community and like you said um the security like you mentioned the um 
the your child hopefully god willing out outliving you you have some built-in cash flow and uh, wealth to pay for the services and you know where they are because they're in this community that's that's right you've really married some interesting things together maria that's the plan that's the plan wow big brain i like it (laughs) just trying to solve problems you know it's all about solving problems well and i think that's a common theme with you know the entrepreneurial community but you've um you know, you've done it in such a, like, it's just, I don't know anyone else doing what you're doing. It's, it's a very cool, very unique, passion-filled approach. Um, do you see a, do you see a, um, with the tag, I was thinking about the tax credit stuff. So like you don't get, and I'm verbally familiar with the tax credit process. My younger brother used to work for a, a tax credit group and that's all they did. So I, and I used to appraise some tax credit apartments, but it's been a while. So there's nothing that would stop you in the tax credit, new construction world, um, like marrying it up with your kind of autistic platform. Um, Cause I guess they're just standard tenants with income qualification. Is that, am I wrong on yeah, that? Yeah. So this is um, it's through Florida housing, um, the affordable housing plans. Mm-hmm. So they actually have uh, requests for proposals are specific for special needs. So it's actually geared towards that. Okay. So it's, it's all part of the, what they want to see. They want us to create affordable housing for people with special needs. And then they give us the tax credit specifically for that. So only nonprofits can apply for those things. And um, yeah, it's, it's tailored for that. So that's not something we invented. Yeah. I had, um, I had a group, they didn't come on the show. They're just former, I'd say colleagues slash kind of clients. Um, they were doing a veterans um like HUD Vash, have you familiar? So um, it's Housing Urban Development Veterans Association. Some people call it HUD Vash. And, um, but you had to, at least what they were doing, you had to be a nonprofit to qualify. It might've just been for the funding. I'm not sure if they were pulling tax credits or not, but the funding was tremendous, um, like 90% LTV or better with, you know, some room for capex i think so it was yeah, like that's, that's about where this falls as well okay so like kind of unparalleled in like the uh, traditional market for financing so um and it serves a purpose like here in jackson i mean what you're doing most certainly does and it would in i would say probably almost every market we are and here in jacksonville we're a number one navy retirement city two naval bases a lot of military here so um i think the the veterans angle was a good one here. So I'm always very curious. You know, I was like, like we mentioned before the show, I was a history major and a teacher and a coach before getting into real estate. And when I hear about people doing, so those are very like, you know, passion filled pursuits. It was difficult for me to leave that um, on that level. I knew I needed to do a little more for my family and I've always had an entrepreneurial bent to me, but you know, when I hear about you and others kind of marrying the two concepts up and, and being able to have like, you know, that intrinsic benefit in addition to something, you know, that generates wealth and gives you time freedom and family freedom. I, I really like that. Nice well, comment. I, I'm sorry, Maria. And I was going to say, you know, if what, what, where do you want to take this? You know, because part of where I, part of where we sometimes go in these talks is like, you know, goals. And so I feel like one goal must feel like you've already done it. Like you did kind of a novel thing and you pulled it off and it sounds like you pulled it off perhaps. More and the than goal one. is to have this across the entire nation. We, we need these communities everywhere. I have parents call me constantly. When are you going to build one in Texas? When are you going to build one in California? Are you coming to New York? You know, the, the demand is huge. 
And mm. so, you know, I've already reached out to some people in some other areas to, uh, to go there next, you know, we've got some people in Utah that are looking to do this and people in Hawaii. I mean, there's, there's people who want to do this all over. So once we get a good proof of concept going a couple of times, um, we want to kind of package that up, not, not a franchise, if you will, but you know, just something that someone can replicate. Yeah. That's amazing. So typically, and I know I kind of asked this before, but I'm just a little more clarification. So like, say you do your, your Utah project or whatever's next, would you expect most of your LPs to be parents or guardians or is that, or am I off on that? No, I think that can be a really great strategy for folks. Cause I mean, depending on how much you invest, you could make sure that it, it covers their cost of living there forever or wherever they choose to live, because obviously you could spend the money anywhere you want. But I think it's a good plan for anybody, a parent or a grandparent that just wants to make sure their kids are, are going to be okay when they leave this world. Right. Or just for themselves. Like, a lot of people do the 1031 exchanges in LP investments and every five, seven years, you're going to have to find a new place. Uh, someone's going to be wanting to take a tick into a large complex, you know, tenant and comment for those listeners who may not know what that is. But that can be a pain in the butt after a while. Like here you can just park it and forget it and you're still going to get your capital back. So you can still go invest that somewhere else if you wanted to keep rolling with that. But if you just want to make sure you just have that constant income coming in, that's, that's pretty, pretty awesome. You know, and I guess just to say, to rephrase it in just very, very plain English. I mean, if I had an autistic child, I could invest enough in one of these communities to where I know my preferred return is sufficient to cover their rent in the perpetuity. And at the same time, we're getting, you know, we're amortizing debt. We have the tax benefits and we're gaining wealth because certainly over time that asset is appreciating. Wow. That's cool, Maria. Very cool. So it's just not many people that are doing something actually, I don't want to disparage any, anyone else, but it's like, there's something to be said for like not being too inventive as an entrepreneur, because you got, you know, sometimes you just get slaughtered, but it's like, I love to see somebody doing something like this is kind of novel. You know, you're marrying something like tried and true and established and like one of the most fundamentally sound asset classes, you know, with this cause and this need and this passion and you're marrying in like, kind of different dynamic funding and nonprofit. So hats off to you. It's really cool. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right. Well, if you don't mind, I don't know if you, I didn't, I didn't prep you for this, but sometimes we'll do Uh-oh. like a deal breakdown. If, if my guest is not a, like a investor, I kind of stay away. And if you don't like this, we'll just, I'll ask Sam to edit it out. But if you do, we'll rock and roll. Um, we call it the coach Brown breakdown. So it'd be just a sample, a sample deal. And what we usually ask is how did you find it, fund it, fix it, and exit? I know you're not so much of an exit girl, but maybe you have exited in the past. But finding it, funding it, what'd you do to it? And then an exit if there is one. So if you don't want to run through one, that's fine. But I'm going to give you the opportunity if you do. Yeah, I'm just trying to think if there's a particularly interesting one. Well, something that might help your listeners would be my first multifamily. Because people always say, you know, getting in is the absolute hardest part. So um, we could maybe tackle that one. I won't say it was a home run, but okay. it did get me going, right? So um, it, once we figured out we wanted to get into multifamily, everyone said, you got to get to know the brokers, right? So started networking, attending all the meetings, all the conferences, all those kind of stuff. And what we figured out pretty quick is that the 
the really big brokers that have been doing this a long time, they kind of have their niche clients that they're going back to, and it's really hard to get in there. So what we started looking for were the newer brokers, you know, still with the bigger firms, it can be your Marcus and Millichap or something like that, but, but newer brokers that didn't already have an established client list and then show them that you've closed on other things, even if it was single family. And if you could show me you have businesses, hey, look, you know, we got a business mind, we're running these things for, we execute on what we say we're going to do. Like you've got to sell them on that because you can't show them this proven track record of multifamily and then show them, show them your accounts, show them you got the cash to close. Right. And um, so that was kind of the strategy there. So we found a new broker and um, he helped us find some stuff. And this was right when real estate was really starting to, or in Florida in particular, the, the market was getting hot. So everybody's coming in with, you know, hard money down first day, 30 days to close, crazy stuff. So we also knew we needed to be able to do that. So we built a good relationship with a local bank because they are way more flexible. And when you tell them you're on a time, time crunch to do something, they can usually do it. So they had everything prepared in advance so we can make a really good offer. And so we found a, a property that we liked and we knew that the most important thing for us was not the price. It was establishing our credibility in the multifamily world. So we had to get this property. Of course, you don't want to overpay to the point that um, you're not cash flowing. So cash flow is always a priority. But basically, you know, we knew what everybody else was offered. And we said, let's just go in hot more than what they're offering and make a contingent on a 24 hour acceptance and, um, and really fast close. And so that's what we did. And it wasn't the best, most beautiful property. It was a 12 unit, wasn't anything super exciting. It's done okay, not great, not bad, just kind of middle of the road. Still way better than any of my single family did, but it got us that establishment. So now when we went to buy the next one, we could show that track record. Hey, we've already done this, we closed. We said we were gonna close in this quick time frame. We did that, you know, we, you know, there's no retrading, none of that business. So you know, not super exciting. We didn't go make $10 million in 10 days or something like that. But, um, but it was just sort of something that might help your listeners when it comes to getting your foot in with the brokerages and starting to establish that credibility. Cause the hardest, the first one was the hardest. I agree. And there's that concept of the law of the first deal. We've talked about it before, but it might've been a few episodes, but you know, I obviously host this podcast for a reason. I think this, these conversations, this education is important. I think this is a message more people need to hear. And if I can help that, then I'm doing my job. I think that at a point, you don't need to, you don't stop listening to things like this, but you must go out into your market. You must go out and do, you know, the strongest word in the English language, two letters, D-O, go do. And I, you have to, because like your 12 unit deal. No, you don't make $10 million on 12 units, at least- <laughs> Not any, not any markets I know, of, but you found the deal. I mean, the first, I think the first deal that I did, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not embarrassed of it. It was the first thing I ever did. It was like a thirty-eight thousand dollar little like purple house, you know. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> I knew the land was, I knew the lot was worth around that, and and I was, and I'm not a contractor, but you know, I went through. I'm like, we can fix this thing up, and I thought it was, you know, one fifty, one sixty on the exit, um, maybe a forty thousand dollar rehab. I'm like, let's go. And, um, and it took longer and it cost more than 40 to fix it. But, you know, we made our, I think 55 grand and I did it pretty much alone. And I 1031 into an eight unit apartment. Now yeah. I'm a, now I'm a landlord. Four of those tenants were vouchers. Now I'm learning about vouchers. Now I'm, now I'm coordinating vendors. Now I'm working with the housing authority. 
And then we got out of that one, moved into 28, 83. And, you know, people meet you on your journey and they're like, oh, you've got over a hundred units and all, this much passive income and podcast host or whatever. It doesn't start that way. Like, don't, don't compare time now with your time, you know, or my time now with your time now. It's like, they're different timelines. You know, you, you gotta give yourself some room, you know, yep. seven, seven years ago, you wouldn't be, in, you wouldn't be impressed. So um, anyways, just, just having some perspective. Yeah, no. And then you get to learn all those things you think you learned because you listened to the podcast, you read the books, you took the courses, but until you do it, Oh man, property management is hard. Even when you have a property manager, like you got to manage that property manager. And we screwed that up really big on that one. Like had, had to fire him, get out of a messy contract, get a new property manager. Like now I know how to screw in you know, a property manager. And I learned that there. And, and I think it's very important to go, if, if you're looking to become a syndicator, for example, go do it on your own a couple of times first. Do not take a chance with other people's money until you've been through the school of hard knocks. So screwed up with your own money. I'm okay with losing my money. I don't like losing my own money, but you know, we just call that tuition, right? For learning. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, so pay tuition with your own money before you're paying it with other people's money. So go make the mistakes because you're going to make the mistakes. I'm still making mistakes. I'm just that not was awesome, that awesome, Maria. Point, you know? Sam, we might need to clip that for the, uh, for the social media clip. That was awesome. I like that. Your tuition. I've paid some tuition. <laughs> I've paid some paid tuition, tuition, Maria. Yeah. Um, anyways, I, I okay, I, I could go down that rabbit hole. I'm going to stop. Okay. So it sounds like, um, you know, the last thing I usually ask on these sample deals is lessons. It sounds like, you know, kind of that law of the first deal, you know, getting a track record, you know, paying your own tuition. And um, no, it doesn't sound like you lost money on it, but I know what you mean, you know. I don't think I would, we did a syndication. It was not for multifamily. It was for an, a, a big industrial site. We closed two months ago. And um, congratulations. Thank you. We raised a million in private equity, you know, uh, retail lenders, not, not a, uh, not family office or anything. And um, it, it was a little challenging because it was a, a deal that didn't cash flow. It's an accrual deal with a, with a big pop. Great deal though. But what I'm getting at is like, I can't imagine going to uh even the wise Carlton Sheets or someone else, I can't imagine like walking out of a seminar and being like, I'm going to go syndicate. It's, I just think it's reckless. I, I do agree with you. I think you need to bite off something that you can bite off. Um, you may need to partner in the beginning, but just, I would, I would be very careful. Um, Cause I think one thing people don't talk about a lot. If you really get wiped out in your first deal, some people rebound, they pop on shows like this, they're on bigger pockets, they're like, you know, stars that rise from the ashes. But for like a regular person, if you get wiped out early, like that might be it. You might just be like, <laughs> like, I'm gonna go be a school teacher, I'm gonna go do something else, you know, like, it's just it's just too much. Um, so I think that that law of the first deal doing it right, making a huge profit is much less important than not losing money and gaining lessons like that's, that's really what matters. Um, all right, Maria, we're going to do a couple, I call it the uh, call to play section. So we're just going to run through some some resources that you like for the audience. And um, and it gives us a little texture on you a little bit. So first one is real estate or personal development books. What are your, what are some of your favorite real estate books or personal development books? Um, I really like Vivid Vision. Now, maybe that's because that's sort of my thing is, is, um, seeing something that's needed and, and going after it. But um, Vivid Vision, Cameron. Harold. Thank you. 
Yes. So I, I, yeah, I, I'm no. familiar with it. I actually haven't read it, but it's on my, it's on my uh, list. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, read that. Uh, read that. So it, it really helps you get a very clear vision of where you go. Cause you may have an, a vague idea, but really knowing where you're going, because then you can say yes to everything that brings you down that path and no to everything that distracts you. So kind of the one thing too is, is along that same path, right? You got to have the one thing and you just say yes to everything that brings you there and no to everything else. Cause there's a lot of shiny objects out there. It's really easy to get distracted. So I really like that. That's why I like these questions. Cause you know, I already kind of knew this from our conversation, but by you answering with vivid vision and the one thing, I know you have focus. And even if you don't naturally have focus, if those are the books you like, by God, you're getting yourself focused. So yeah, uh, that's why it's part of why I like these little roundup conversations. <laughs> um, what do you do for fun when you're not solving the housing problems of the autistic community soon to be across America? What are you out there doing for fun? <laughs> um, I go do the things I used to get paid to do. I, I volunteer to go do wildlife work. So I'm still up there climbing trees and, um, you know, slinging a, a, a torch on a fire. If they'll have me on the prescribed burns, go tackle a wildfire with somebody, work on wildlife stuff. I'm, I'm still the president of the floor chapter of the Wildlife Society. So still involved in that, um, just just can't get that out of me. So we won't see any of your new communities being built in uh, in uh, wetlands? No, probably not. <laughs> yeah, I'm very much into the re reuse kind of thing. That's, you know, we, we talked off show a little bit about the hotel conversions. I like the idea of converting something and giving it new life, right? And there's a lot yeah. of empty office buildings and things that can be converted and reused. And so we're looking for lands that can be done that way as well. Yeah. No, I think that like a clever change of highest and best use or adaptive reuse. I think those are talk about using like creativity, like an artistic vision plus real estate. Some exactly. of the coolest projects. All right. Your best advice for those eager yield coach audience members. Do not go at it alone. Don't play the lone wolf as much as I love wolves. Don't play the lone wolf. They do better in teams. You know, got to have that pack to support you. Yes. I love yeah. that you I love that you threw in as much as I love wolves. Yeah, I'm getting such a clearer vision of you, Maria. All right. Um, the Viking coming out of you too, and the and the biologist. Awesome. Right. Can't row that Viking boat alone either. So, look at that. You're just now you're now you're just being selfish. You're dropping all the nuggets. I got though. nothing to say to that. It's just cool. You <laughs> can't row that Viking boat alone. All right, Maria, this has been fun. Where can people uh, connect with you, learn more, find you? Bluevikingscapital.com. There's links there to Valhalla. There's links to all my social media, my email address, my phone number. Hit me up. And you should, guys. You should hit her up. Um, this has been a lot of fun. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed this show. Um, we tackled some unique things, in particular, the topic of autism and real estate and investment and apartments. So I don't know that we'll ever do that again. So share this episode with a friend if you think it would be impactful or the topic would resonate. Uh, as always, follow Rate Review. It helps us get um, you know a little higher in the algorithm and better and better content along the way. If you're into the socials, check us out at Yield Coach on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We frequently post deal opportunities, bonus content, and inside looks into our personal and professional pursuits. But for now, guys, that is a wrap on this show with Maria. It's been fun. I'm your coach, Ian Brown, signing off and reminding everyone to lace up and leave it all on the field. Yield Coach, out. 